If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is now official. Canada's biggest public sector union has walked off the job, and it's one of the biggest strikes the country has ever seen, with about 155,000 civil servants affected by this. Taria Isri is joining us now with more on this from Ottawa. Taria, what happened here? Did talks break down? So they still are at the negotiating table, but the government and the union just can't seem to uh, get on the same page when it comes to wages. That's really the big sticking point. Uh, the union says salaries are not keeping up with inflation. Uh, they want a 13.5% raise over three years. At this point, the government is only prepared to go to 9% over three years. Uh, the Liberals call the demands from the union unaffordable, and they warn It'll affect their ability to deliver other services. But the union says most of its members make between forty and $65,000 a year. And just given the high rate of inflation we've seen, they're, they're struggling to get by. There's also a push uh, by the union for more rights when it comes to remote work. Um, but really, wage is the big sticking point here. Okay. And so is that really, would you say, the biggest obstacle at this point? Uh, I think it is the biggest obstacle, and, and there's also a push for, for more benefits and I think more flexibility. The federal government had mandated uh, civil servants to return to the office for two to three days a week. Um, so I, I think the union wants more rights and more say when it comes to remote work. But, you know, as so many Canadians have seen over the past two years, it's it's really difficult to make ends meet given just how expensive uh, groceries are, housing so that's the, the place where I guess the government's going to have the hardest time because the government is also trying to balance the books on its end. And, and they say they're trying to find some sort of happy medium for taxpayers as well as union members. Okay, so what services are being affected here? Uh, so this strike's going to affect services in 23 departments, but I think the big ones Canadians will feel uh, if this does drag on will be uh, the CRA and also passports. You know, you might remember those long lineups at passport offices uh, last summer um, as people started traveling more when uh, pandemic restrictions eased. So the federal government only now cleared the backlog. So, you know, if you don't have these civil servants processing pa- passport applications, you know, we could potentially see a repeat. And and as I said, um, you know, we know it's tax season. The deadline for filing personal income taxes is May 1st. So a lot of those services are electronic, but, you know, if you have to call the CRA for information, um, you know, and also processing um, tax returns in terms of when people will get their refunds, those things could all be affected. Now, the government says essential services will not be affected, but I think the big things to watch for are taxes and passports. Okay, and I know people are definitely watching taxes and passports closely here. So what about the idea of any kind of back-to-work legislation? Has the government said anything about that? 
Uh, at this point, they're not committing to that. You know, it is still <clears throat> early days, but, um, you know, the union members will be out on the picket line. Uh, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, is expected to join them, and, and he says he supports the strike, and if the government were to table back-to-work legislation, he won't support that. Uh, so at this point, you know, we're, it, it doesn't seem like there's going to be back-to-work legislation in the immediate future. Both sides are still at the bargaining table, but it really depends on how long this lasts and, and how affected uh, services are, because that may put the government under, under increasing pressure to act. You know, this is expected to be the largest federal public worker strike since 1991. So that's 32 years. Wow. Okay. Listen, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been more than 30 years since we have seen a full-scale strike by the Public Service Alliance of Canada, but this morning, 155,000 workers are on that picket line. So there are federal services that could be delayed if you need them, uh, particularly getting your tax return or maybe getting a passport. There are essential service levels that are in effect here, but you can imagine everything is going to be a lot slower. We know it's about wages and working conditions, but what historically has driven public service workers to strike and how has that all worked out? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Dr. David Camfield, who's an associate professor and coordinator of labor studies at the University of Manitoba. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Where would you rate this strike historically? Is it is it a big one for Canadians? I mean, it is significant because of the sheer number of workers involved. You know, a, a single strike that involves over 100,000 people does not happen very often. Um, the last time there was a federal government worker strike like this was 2004, and the previously was one in 1991. And then the so-called clerks group um, was out in 1980. So that's some of the precedents in the background. And so the last one I know that was a really big one was back in 1991. What happened there? Um, well, the 1991 strike lasted for several weeks and then was ended by back-to-work legislation um, in October of 1991, if I remember correctly. Um, and then, you know, that, that was a strike that was marked by, you know, some significant tensions between um, workers and, uh, and the government at the time. 2004 was a little more muted. Uh, the context for this one is, is quite different, I think, than 2004. We have, you know, high levels of inflation, and the job market is relatively better for workers than it was in 2004. Right. So you're saying this is a different set of circumstances. Absolutely. Okay. So then the approach that the government is taking here, they're saying that, no, no, we can't give you more than, you know, 9%. And does it surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think that uh, the government's position is, is pretty predictable. I mean, they did recently give the military uh, 10.5% over four years. So I expect they will probably move at the bargaining table a little bit. Right. Is this a reflection, though, do you think, like how the government responds to this, then, Dr. Camfield? Is that a reflection, do you think, of, of they also have to deal with the political aspects of this, too, right? Oh, absolutely. There's a political aspect, uh, both because the settlement that is achieved will be you know, widely observed by other public sector and, and private sector workers. So uh, it can affect the expectations of, of workers across the board. And the government is trying to you know, lower workers' expectations in terms of wage increases despite the rising cost of living. So that's a factor that's playing into it. And, but they also have to think politically about the next election. Do they want to really anger federal government workers and drive more of them to vote for other parties? I mean, these are all the different things that must be on the minds of the Liberals at the moment. I also wonder as well, like, this is a bit unique, isn't it, though, because of that situation involving the work from home. This That seems to be a real sticking point for this particular labor dispute. 
it's distinctive for sure, and this is something that I guess a lot of people can can relate to in one way or another. During the worst part of the pandemic, many, many federal government workers were working from home. And then uh, more recently, there was a unilateral everybody back to the office at least two days a week uh, you know, rule that was, was brought in, which I think has caused a lot of frustration among government workers. And so right now, there's nothing in the contract, nothing in the collective agreement about remote work. And the union's trying to negotiate some basic provisions uh, that would address this. And you know, to the extent that they're successful, that will also be widely seen um, by, by other groups of people. So, um, and it, But that's not about money so much as it's more about power and uh, the you know, government not wanting to uh, give up control on, on unilaterally making decisions about that. Right. I know. I was reading about the 1991 strike, and that was about saving money at the time for the government, wasn't it? Uh, well, that was in the, yeah, the context of, uh, you know, the turn to neoliberal policies and, uh, and austerity at the federal government. So uh, the government was really preoccupied with that at the time. And, uh, you know, there wasn't an issue like this, but also, you know, the context was very different in terms of the state of the job market and um, where things were at. There wasn't this widespread inflation that so many people have been experiencing. So would you say then this one is a bit different in terms of that power balance? And in this case, the government is saying we can't give up those, those bits of power? Yeah, I think I think in general that the union is in a more favorable position than they were at that point. And then this particular issue about remote work, you know, it's it's harder to um, you know to compromise on that for the government perhaps than it would be on the monetary side of things. I mean, they feel pressures there too, but uh, you know, this is new ground in terms of getting this remote work language into the collective agreement. How long do these things usually go before both sides start to feel the strain? Well, in this case, because the unit hasn't been on strike since 2004, I think their strike funds are probably in quite a good position. Um, and I wouldn't want to compare it to those previous strikes, because I, I do think that the, the factors are different that would affect the, you know, how long the government will let it go before they move towards back-to-work legislation or, or how long the union feels that they will hang on. I don't think this is likely to be a long strike, though. You know, Dr. Campfield, one thing that I've certainly noticed in all the years that I have been doing this and, and covering these kinds of labor disputes, does any, does any side really ever win in a situation like this? Well, sometimes one side will decisively win a strike or decisively lose it. That's certainly the case. Um, you know, lots of strikes come in somewhere, you know, much less clear. Uh, but it is possible for, you know, a strike to end in a, in a significant you know, win or, or significant loss. And so... You know, we just have to wait and see what actually gets negotiated. And we don't know what's going on behind closed doors at the bargaining table at the moment. We do not. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a question for you. If you found out that a developer was proposing a mixed supportive housing project near your home, what would you do? If it was near a school, community center? Well, all too often, no matter where you live in Metro Vancouver, the answer has been the same. Neighborhoods that fight it because they feel it doesn't fit or it doesn't belong there. It's in the wrong location. There has been a particularly contentious one at Arbutus and 7th in Vancouver that despite being approved by the city after a public hearing process and a vote, is now being fought in court by a group called the Kitsilano Coalition. Now, getting housing built has been challenging in our province because at the municipal level, it appears that getting things passed and started has been challenging. Yesterday, the province stepped in, introduced new legislative amendments to try and change this. So let's find out what that means. Joining us now is BC's Minister of Housing, Ravi Kalon. Thank you for being here. 
Good morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me. What does this legislation do exactly? Well, this legislation is particularly focused on this project. Uh, we also refer to it as the Arbutus Project. Uh, as you've uh, highlighted in your opening, uh, two years of uh, going through uh, local government process, six days of public hearing, getting an approval from city council, uh, election happening, and a new city council coming, and then a lawsuit uh, is what we're dealing with. And, you know, we've got people uh, that are struggling to have housing. You know, we've got people sleeping in Vanier Park, near uh, blocks away from where this uh, project uh, is being proposed, and having to wait years and years, get an approval, and then find out that we have to wait more years uh, is just not acceptable when you're in a major housing crisis. And so this piece of legislation that we brought forward is a reflection on the fact that uh, enough is enough. We have to get housing built because otherwise we're going to have more and more people that are going to be sleeping in parks. And these are people, Sydney, that uh, maybe they've lost a job or maybe they just couldn't find an apartment. Um, and so I think it's a responsibility of us as a province to step in uh, where it needs to step in to make sure that this type of housing is getting built around the province. How do you foresee this being used in other situations? Oh, you mentioned the Arbutus project, but is any municipality going to be able to use this? Well, this is uh, the first time it's being used, but it's also the first time that I'm aware that a housing project has gotten approval from council. Uh, and then has to wait longer for uh, a court hearing. And so uh, I can't uh, speak for the future, uh, but I can say that uh, the Premier and myself have had a you know, real frustration at the process around approving housing. I mean, we are in a massive housing crisis. We have more and more people who can't afford uh, to, to even rent, forget buying, and uh, in the process for approving projects, it's just simply taking too long. And, and so we're going to be bringing some legislation uh, this fall to make sure that the process can move much quicker, giving the local government even tools so that they can move the process quicker. But we need to get to a decision. And when a decision is made, we need to be able to move. And in this case, a decision was made by one council, a previous council, uh, who said, yes, this is important for the community. We need to move. Uh, and then uh, the next council says, yeah, this project is important, and uh, but we're, we're stuck. And so we've stepped in in this uh, situation. Okay, so then is this the beginning of this? You said there's more legislation coming in the fall? Well, this is uh, very uh, isolated to this one location. Um, but we know uh, from talking to local governments that there are issues in the process to ensure that um, that housing can be approved in a quicker way. We're not saying compromise safety. We're not saying not listen to local residents. All those things are still going to be important. But, you know, sometimes it's taking three, four, five, six, seven years <laughs> to approve uh, a single housing project. And when we have people who are in encampments, we have people sleeping in parks, we have uh, young people talking about leaving this province because they can't find a place to live, that is a major crisis, and we can't wait that long for our decisions to be made. Do you expect this to be challenged legally? Uh, uh, I can't speak to what will happen. Uh, I know that uh, the legislation that, um, that I presented yesterday in the House is uh, narrow to that specific uh, case, but, uh, again, it's hard to comment on what might happen. What I can tell you for sure is that this housing is needed. Uh, and again, these are people that are from the community. Uh, you know, it's too often uh, other areas are used as uh, a way to try to scare people. Uh, and often people say, oh, well, 
it's the people from downtown east side are coming these are people that are living in kitsilano who are struggling uh and some even sleeping in a park uh, because they they just simply don't have anywhere to go and and uh, everyone i think understands that first you have to ensure that there's housing so that when if there's other supports people need you can provide them to them but it's simply not safe for anyone in the community or it's not safe for the people themselves if they have to sleep in parks and encampments now the Kitsilano coalition has responded to this and they feel that you are you know helping the city to cover up kind of the unfair process that went into this how do you respond to that well again two years of uh, a process uh, it's six days of public hearing, numerous uh, people presented to council, and, and, and the decision was made by one council, uh, and then after election, the council, for the most part, got changed, and now the next council is saying, yeah, we have a housing crisis, and we, we, we're kind of stuck. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate that, uh, you know, when I hear since I'm becoming the Minister of Housing, everyone says we need more housing, everyone says we need to address the housing crisis. But then I also hear from communities saying, hey, we don't want housing here. And so at some point, we have to make decisions and we have to get going, because if not, the problem is only going to get worse. And, and that is my biggest concern. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that. Thanks for having me, Simi. Be safe. You too. That's Ravi Kalan, BC's Minister of Housing, uh, talking about this, these legislative amendments brought in to deal uh, specifically at this point with this Arbutus and 7th project. They call it the Arbutus Project. Uh, but in this fall, I guess that will be expanded. There will be more legislation where other municipalities can expect the same, where this thing went through a process. It is approved, despite the fact that there's groups like the Kitsilano Coalition that want to fight it. Continue, we're going to fight it in court. And now this project can go ahead. Now, yes, there is an encampment at Vanier Park, actually, and we've seen a lot of coverage of that, too, which is not that far away from this project. So is that fair to say that, okay, we want people not to be in the parks, we have to build it somewhere? This is Mornings with Simi. We've noticed that uptake, but we've seen it as a bit of an anomaly occurring as opposed to the way we were trending for the last while. All right. That is Chief Officer Dave Jones of the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. We talked to him yesterday about what we are seeing on our transit system. More violence, more attacks, just more concerns about what is happening there. We know the union that represents bus drivers uh, have said we need more police, more security patrols to keep staff and passengers safe. We know that there's been concerned people who ride transit saying the same thing. There's been a petition launched. So there are all these worries out there. Transit police say they're dealing with this in a number of different ways. They've got their live texting situation. They say if you see something, then you have to say something. You have to report it right away so they can respond to it. And But they do believe in the end that this will get dealt with. Can we do that with the tools that we currently have? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA for Surrey South. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. What do you think needs to be done here to deal with some of these situations? Well, I think that adding some more police to uh, the Metro Vancouver Transit Police is a good idea, certainly. But I think that it's also sort of only part of the puzzle here and something that we have been asking for is more frontline mental health resources um you know a lot of sort of more to deal with the root cause of crime and people have to recognize too that when we're talking about transit police they have 400,000 customers a day so we're talking about a police force responsible for for keeping safe like a city almost the size of Surrey 
traveling. And so it's really a specialized skill. And we really need to make sure that they have all the tools necessary. And I really do think that looking at ways to address those root causes of crime will address safety issues in the long term. Okay, so what kind of um, root causes of crime are we talking about here? Well, certainly mental health and addictions, um, not only in the transit system, but I think that people can recognize and I think most people by now have had an experience of either witnessing um, unpredictable behaviors as a result of people suffering from either mental health or concurrent addictions issues, those types of things, antisocial behavior. Even when we're talking about things like gang violence, there is a level of antisocial and, and mental health issues that need to be addressed. Those need to be carefully looked at, not only in policing, but also in education. And um, every avenue that we can do, we really need to just stop putting police on top of problems that really they can never truly solve. Putting people in jail doesn't actually solve um, their root causes of what's putting them in that situation. If a person has an untreated mental health or concurrent addictions issue, and then we do not help them rehabilitate the behaviors that put them into that situation in the first place, when they get out again, they will go back to the same you know, crisis-inducing situation they had that led them to come into contact with the criminal justice system. And then in these rare cases that are very serious, we end up having, like, for example, outside of the Starbucks in Vancouver or the throat slashing that happened in Surrey. It's There are some serious, unpredictable behaviors related to mental health that we need to address. So how much training do officers get to deal with these kinds of situations? Because this has now come up in the in the Miles Gray coroner's inquest where the officer yesterday said that she hadn't received any training in dealing with mental health de-escalation. So how much training do officers get? Well, I don't know what every separate force gets, but, you know, in the RCP, we certainly received quite a bit of training, a lot, in fact, starting right from depot and, you know, going on throughout your career as you know, new techniques, new information, new understandings about um, how, you know, dealing with police and people with um, mental illness or concurrent addictions issues, how it's evolved, how we want to deal with people um, who are in crisis. But I think that one of the most important parts to me and what's really at the root of this is that why are we waiting until it's a crisis? Why are we not putting interventions more upstream. And, and this is really at what, what is at the heart of a lot of the things we've seen over the last few years where people are fed up with seeing someone in crisis and the, the, the police have been that safety net. And I think it's quite unfair when the reality is, is that we need to do better at addressing things before they get to a crisis point, which is extremely dangerous for the person suffering that crisis. It's very dangerous for the public and certainly dangerous and full of liability for police agencies. And And, you know, this is one of the things that I'm calling for is like even in question period, we said, why is there no police and mental health outreach team like a car 67 or a PAC team that works side by side with Metro Vancouver Transit Police? It's the size policing something the size of a city and dealing with some of the province's most vulnerable population. Okay, so do you think that would work then? Is it it the de-escalation aspect that we need to train on? Is it more visibility for police, do you think? It's all of it. I think for police, a visible presence certainly helps people feel um, more safe. A visible presence can be a deterrence for people who, you know, want to do things like thefts, for example, or sex assaults. Um, and I think that having mental health outreach teams, whether it's a police and mental health outreach team with a psychiatric nurse or whether it's PAC teams that work side by side with police, I think that preventing, looking at people 
having, you know, specialized training in the community to deal with recognizing signs of um, mental illness or distress and confronting those issues and helping get people connected with services before it becomes a crisis a stabbing an issue where people need to, you know, have interventions that involve physical force by the police. That's the ideal situation. There's always going to be those situations those rare situations where people escalate to a crisis where there could be a weapon or police have to be called and there's physical force used to take that person um, into custody. But we should be working harder to prevent that. And overall, we'll be doing a better job of keeping our community safe when we get to those social causes and really doing a kindness to the people who are suffering from some of these, you know, mental health and concurrent addictions issues. And do you think that's what we're seeing on the transit system? Is that spilling over, that situation spilling over? Absolutely. Even when it comes to things like bullying, even when it comes to things like gang activity, there are antisocial and behaviors. There are mental health issues. There are um, things that can be addressed, and we need to start finding ways to, to, well, first of all, when we're talking immediate action, I don't want to, you know, pie in the sky what we should, 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 but an immediate thing that needs to be done is police and mental health teams need to be engaged on the transit system. We need to um, fortify the number of officers in the Metro Vancouver Transit Police and ensure that their training is the most current modern training for dealing with the traveling criminal, first of all, because it is actually a specialized skill, and then making sure that they have the most modern um, techniques for dealing with people in a mental health crisis. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thanks a lot. This is Mornings with Simi. The fight to save Simon Fraser University football is not over yet. It may have seemed like it's gotten a little quiet there for a little bit, but I'm hoping that that means things are perhaps busy behind the scenes because it's been a couple of weeks now since everyone heard about the administration's decision to cancel the varsity football program with no notice, I might add, despite the fact that students have spent years trying to get into the program and they didn't know anything about this. So why is this important? Well, I think it's important that people in charge of publicly funded institutions don't make universal and huge decisions that impact students' lives and careers without talking to them first, without helping them, without explaining why this is being done. When something has the history and significance of this athletic program, the way this varsity football program does at SFU, It deserves that acknowledgement. So what is happening behind the scenes and what kind of impact has public pressure had on this situation? Well, Mark Bailey is with us now, president of the SFU Football Alumni Society. Mark, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, engage. Yeah, tell me, what's going on behind the scenes here? Are you still hopeful about this? Very positive, very hopeful. Uh, A lot of things going on, a lot of... uh, People will be working behind the scenes right now on a lot of different things. Uh, we are in communications with uh, the university this week. Uh, this has been the first opportunity we've had since the announcement was made two weeks ago today uh, to, to get in front of the university and obviously carry on with uh, communications as to understanding what's happening and how we can rectify the scenario. Okay, so what has the messaging been like then, Mark? I know I'm sure you've been trying. I know the Alumni Society has been trying to talk to the university. Has has that attitude kind of changed towards talking about this? Well, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions and a lot of things that are happening. And you, you know, like you, you see all the online banter, and you know, whether it's on social media or whatnot. And there's a lot of people that have a lot of animosity. That is not our angle here at all. It's more of a genuine understanding. It's not like 
at this point. Why did you do it? Of course, we understand that we want to know, but it's more like how do we get the program reinstated? And as you likely know, and everybody else does know, that we've filed the, the injunction with the players and also head coach uh, Mike Regal. Um, you know, we don't we don't necessarily want to have to carry forward with the legal proceedings. We would prefer in which we can carry on with communications and move things along. So we've got a lot of people that are already key stakeholders as well as new key stakeholders that want to step up and, and support the program to be reinstated. So there's there's a lot of things in which you're seeing in, in, in media. You know, I don't know if we would necessarily want to say they're applied pressures, but it, it, it's more obviously associated with just carrying the dialogue for and, and, and getting as much support as we can to, to create the, the awareness. Um, yeah, so just a lot of a lot of support has come, and we're, we're very thankful and appreciative to see all the things that have happened on a national, even even a North American scale. Yeah, tell me about some of the reaction to that. What has it? P- people who probably never even thought about this football program before are now suddenly they feel quite passionate about this, don't they? Absolutely, and you know, like what we're seeing is we're seeing an opportunity here um, in which that we we've, we've either created new engagement or kind of instilled like prior engagement people have come back you know like i can tell you you know our group or committees of people that are working very hard in the background on a lot of different things um you know have had the opportunity to engage with previous supporters and new supporters and it's created an opportunity where i think that if this program does get reinstated in which obviously i, I firmly believe it can be reinstated it should come back bigger better stronger and and just overall a, a, you know a better program than before from what you've heard, Mark, is there a place for the team to play next season? We've had a lot of ongoing communications with uh, several different uh, athletic associations. Uh, we do firmly believe in which there can be a season for this season uh, in 2023 outside of the Lone Star um, scheduling, which was already uh, built. So we already had a schedule to play. But in regards to that scenario, if the Lone Star essentially the program's reinstated and we're going to walk and we're not, we're not going to let you play your schedule because they've already made other arrangements. We do firmly believe in which we do have opportunities, whether it be with uh, the NEIA and or youth sport to have, you know, possible exhibition uh, games played and or uh, competed. Mark, what does the program mean to you? Program means a lot. It's better than football. It's, it's more like an ecosystem of, uh, of things in which, uh, the people that go through this program and develop, you know, to become professionals, uh, give back, you know, to community, municipalities, you know, whether it be on a, a local scale or a national scale, um, the amount of influence and, and positive role models that are produced through the program that contribute back um, is instrumental as, as well as priceless um, to, to many different scenarios. You know, so like the BC high school football landscape, uh, vast majority of uh, the coaches and volunteers are, SFU football alumni. So if we cut this pipeline, um, in my opinion, we're eliminating the opportunities in which others can be influenced with positive role models to give back. In addition to that, the, the program itself is one of the biggest platforms, I, I believe, at the university, which has the ability to create awareness to show how you can have a diverse group of people working towards a common goal. So... You know, we're talking about all different, you know, ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds working together to try to achieve success. I don't think that's easily duplicated in a lot of scenarios with the university. And it shows, working through adversity, what, what can happen when a, a group of diverse people 
are, are working together. Yeah, this, this is what I have found when it comes to athletics at, at any level. It can be an equalizer, can't it? Absolutely. And, you know, like if, if, we, if we talk about, you know, uh, unique scenarios in which, you know, like our kicker is a female, Christy Elliott, it's, it's a great indication to show, you know, like what, what can happen uh, for certain individuals and opportunities that are given. Like, that's a great success story in which you don't see anywhere else. Okay, so Mark, lay it out for us. What's going to happen, do you think, over the next little while? What's going on? Well, I meet with the president tomorrow, uh, Joy Johnson, and uh, the VP provost, uh, Mr. Uh, Wade uh, Parkhouse. Uh, you know, following that meeting, I believe we'll have a better understanding as to uh, what needs to happen or is happening, hopefully, right now to get things back in line, or we'll get a general understanding as to, you know, what, what the pushback is and, and why, and then we'll align ourselves to, to hopefully meet whatever, whatever is needed to, to get things back, in, back reinstated. Okay, so um, tomorrow's crucial then. Yeah, it's, you could call it a bit of a high-pressure situation. <laughs> yeah, you could. All right, well, but, hopefully, uh, yeah. give us an update, yeah, Mark, what, what happens, okay? Because we want to know what happens. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. That is Mark Bailey. Mark is the president of the SFU Football Alumni Society. As you heard, tomorrow is a big day then. They are meeting with administration at the university to talk about, well, bringing this back, moving it forward. Problem is, they don't know what the university is going to say. Up until now, they haven't spoken. We've tried and tried and tried to get them to talk to us about the rationale for this. What is going on? Why would they do this? Just tell us why you did this. Nothing. Just a whole solid wall that we get there. So we'll wait and see. Could there be progress on this tomorrow? And of course, we will have it for you.